Amen. See how much I trust you? We have been in a series on Sunday mornings called The Journey, and uh, we're using a booklet just like this. If you do not have a copy, you can find them on the table in the back. And over the last couple of weeks, we have been in part one. And uh, I've heard from quite a few of you about books two and three, um, the discipleship books that we made available, uh, the content of those. We want you to be familiar with them, and we want you to begin to prepare for spiritual babies to be born into your life. Just the way that parents that are expecting new children uh, prepare a nursery at home and buy supplies. You know, they don't wait till the baby is born to run to the store. Like on the way home from the hospital, they don't stop at Walmart and say, oh, we need to pick up some diapers and a diaper bag and we need a, a swing and we need some toys and we need some onesies. They have prepared for that baby to come. And I think a lot of times in the church, we're like, oh, Lord, save souls. Oh, Lord, do this. And yet the Lord has given us a strict command to go as a body of Christ and make disciples. And how many of us are preparing for him to actually answer that prayer? And maybe the reason God doesn't answer the prayer is because he doesn't want to bring spiritual babies to a place where they're not going to be cared for. Amen. That's a good word, Pastor Tom. So we want you to begin to take those books and pray over them, believing that as you familiarize yourself with the content, that God is going to do His part and open a door for you to make a disciple. I didn't hear a lot of amen. And maybe you're not ready to make a disciple. Can I tell you you're ready to make a disciple? You are ready and you are prepared and you are equipped by the power of the Holy Spirit. But He's not going to do all the work for you. Sometimes in Pentecost, we take that one verse out of Scripture in the book of Acts where it says, don't worry about what you're going to say, but the Holy Spirit will fill your mouth. That's not an excuse to be lazy and not do the work of knowing the content so that when the disciple comes along, the Holy Spirit has something to draw from. He will remind us of what we have heard. And so let's make sure that we're getting, doing our part so that he can do his part. And so I want to encourage you as you go through uh, part one. Today's going to be our last time in part one. There's a section at the back um, of that, the last page of that, where there are several words that are given that are essential for salvation or deal with salvation. And I want you to take some time this week, if you haven't already done that, read over that list, ponder that list, maybe look up. Those words in the scripture, look up the definitions of those words. What do they mean? Unpack them. Let the Holy Spirit kind of just bring them to your mind. Those are words that we're going to hear over and over as we go through the journey. And we're not going to actually take time to do that on a Sunday morning. Uh, if we took time to do that, we would spend probably six months in part one. And so I'm going to let you do some of that work on your own. And so as we've gone through um, this this journey, there are three tables that I want to continue to remind you of. The table of intimacy where we sit with the Lord, the table where we sit with the body of Christ, and then the table where we sit with people that are not believers, but are imago Dei, they're made in the image of God. Jesus sat with all three of these groups, and I believe we're called to sit with all three of these groups, and where we're sitting makes a difference in how we should respond to the people that we're sitting with. And so we're going to continue to talk about these tables and what they mean and how they work, and we may rename them. Um, I'm trying to walk my way through this process uh, as far as 
what this looks like for us as a church to put handles on so that we can explain it not only to uh, one another, but to people that ask us about our church and what we stand for. And so in part one of the book, the question that we've been asking is, what is the gospel? And it's defined pretty clearly that we were created for a relationship with God, that sin separated us from that relationship. There's nothing we can do to fix it. Jesus died to deal with our sin. Jesus rose again to give us eternal life. And eternal life is not just a ticket to heaven when we die, but eternal life is knowing God. We've been reconciled to relationship with Him, and we get to live with Him for all of eternity, starting with the day we surrender our lives to Him. And so today, as we finish up this part, this part one, I want to share with you just some thoughts on what I've titled Freely Receive, Freely Give. Freely Receive, Freely Give. For me, this is the essence of the kingdom of God. There is nothing in the kingdom that originates in me or in you. Everything we have comes from Him. Anything we do, anything we we give as a part of the kingdom has to originate with Him. He puts in, we give out. Okay? A lot of times we try to do it in our own strength or in our own human ability or ingenuity. That's destined for failure. Apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Okay? Nothing lasting, nothing eternal. We cannot produce eternal fruit apart from Him. We are His representatives on the earth. The authority, the commission that we have as His representatives comes from Him. I know that each of us has a job where we earn money and we bring it in, but ultimately our livelihood does not come from our hard work. It comes from Him. The forgiveness that we've received comes from Him. And not only are we supposed to receive it, but we're supposed to give it. The mercy that we receive, the eternal life we've received, all is supposed to flow out of us. This is what Jesus is teaching His disciples in Matthew chapter 10, where He is about to send them out. He's commissioning them to go into the cities, not to the Gentiles, not to uh, the foreigners yet, but just to the Jews, to places where He is about to visit. And in Matthew chapter 10, as he's sending them, this is what he says. Verse 7, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. The disciples, the apostles here, And we ourselves are carriers of the kingdom. The Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians says that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. We are receiving from God things in the kingdom in order to release them in other places where we go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, the Apostle Paul, as he's talking about us being a temple of the Holy Spirit, he's talking about the things pertaining to the Spirit. We actually sometimes in our human trans- or English translations translate that as spiritual gifts. That's such a poor translation of the word that Paul is using in the Greek, which actually is matters pertaining to the Spirit. About spiritual things or the matters pertaining to the Spirit, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. 
I don't want you to be unaware of them. I want you to understand them. Because the Spirit comes to each of us so that the manifestation of the Spirit can be made known to all. Now that word manifestation is not a scary word. It's not a difficult word. It just means something was hidden and it was made known to the people in the room. Like right now, maybe you can't see that there's a cell phone right here. Let me manifest it to you. I showed you the cell phone is here. And so the ways that the Holy Spirit works, whether it's a word of knowledge, whether it's a gift of healing, whether it's a word of wisdom, whether it's the distinguishing between evil spirits and and right spirits, that's a manifestation of the Spirit. And it does not originate in you and me. It originates in the Spirit. But He is the one that originates it through us so that we can make Him known to others. The word of knowledge is not just given for me to feel better about myself. It's given so that I can use it to unlock the heart of someone else so that the kingdom can flow through me to them. That's the manifestation of the Spirit. The parable of the soils that we started this journey with. If you remember, the message, the seed that was sown is the message about the kingdom. Okay? But sometimes the message of the kingdom is sown on hard soil, hard hearts. These are those that don't receive the message of the kingdom, the fact that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit ought to be manifesting in our lives daily wherever we go. Sometimes we just don't receive it. Sometimes we think, well, that's not for today. Well, that's not for me. Maybe that's for someone else that's more spiritual than me. And if we don't even receive it into our hearts, it's not going to produce any fruit. Meaning, the Spirit is not going to manifest at work. It starts with you and I actually receiving it. Believing that God has commissioned us and called us to do as he did for his disciples to say, the kingdom is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons... Cleanse those who have leprosy. The kingdom has come. However, there's a second soil that receives that message on Sunday morning, and they're like, praise God, amen, Pastor Tom. Woo, glory to God. I'm ready. I'm going to walk out that door, and I am going to be a releaser of the kingdom. Praise the Lord. And it begins to bear fruit almost instantly. Something sprouts up. But then we find out on Monday morning we're grumpy. Didn't sleep well. Spouse was hard on us. Kids are disobedient. Overslept. Trials, tribulations. Trying to do it. Coworkers are getting on my nerves. People aren't doing what I think they ought to do. I mean, you had one job. Let's do it right, people. I mean, this is what we do. We go through the week, and because of the difficulty that we face, the word dies. It withers. I don't understand why when we pray or ask things to happen, it just doesn't happen instantly. But I know that the Scripture says that we keep asking, we keep seeking, we keep knocking, we're persistent. We let God use the pain in our lives as we live it out. We don't give up on it. We don't let go of it. We don't say, well, I prayed for someone and it just didn't work out, Pastor Tom. I went into Walmart. I had faith to believe and I I felt like the Spirit prompted me and I, I did it and nothing happened. 
I have a friend of mine who's an evangelist, and he one day was praying for people at the altar, and there was a blind lady there, and he really felt like the Holy Spirit said to spit and to wipe it on her eyes. That's what he felt. And he did it. She didn't get healed. And it would be easy to just be like, I ain't ever doing that again. It'd be easy to let what seems like an unanswered prayer be the reason to stop asking and have no fruit produced. The Apostle Paul says that we comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. And sometimes God allows us to go through something that's difficult and He delays an answer so that you and I know how to comfort those who walk through similar battles. He teaches us how to press in for victory, how to be like the persistent widow that just does not give up. Then there's a soil that, again, praise God, Pastor Tom, Yes, I hear you. I believe I'm going to walk out of this building today and I'm going to be a carrier of the kingdom. And the, the seed gets choked out by the cares, the busyness, the anxiety of life. In other words, we just forget to think about it. Far too many of us go through our day fully unaware of the gift of the Spirit that ought to be operating in our lives. We let the, the busyness, the anxieties, the pressures, the frustrations, whether it gets choked out or withered, we just do not produce fruit because we do not hear it, we do not receive it, we don't put down roots, we don't just continue to press in, and we can produce in the good soil up to a hundred times that which is sown. There's multiplication in the release. There's multiplication in the release. Everything we've received as we give, as we release it out, it multiplies. Even up to a hundred times of that which is sown. So in Luke's account of this story, Luke chapter 9, he says the same thing. Jesus sends out these 12, they go out, they do the thing, they come back, they talk about it, good things happen. But then in Luke chapter 10, Luke adds an element to this story because Jesus sends out 72 other disciples with the same message. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, it says, after this, after all that, the Lord appointed 72 others. Huh. So for those that are just like, it's just the apostles. The apostles were the only ones that were supposed to do this. Luke shows you 72 others were sent out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Can I tell you, since the time of Jesus, the harvest has been plentiful and the workers are few. I just don't have time. I don't have time. Busy. I got to go take care of the land I just purchased i got to go try out these oxen I just bought. I just don't have time. i got to make more money because I bought that thing that I couldn't afford, and i got to make payments on it, so i got to work overtime. I don't have time. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into its harvest field. And then here's, here's the, the best verse. This is going to bless your socks off today. Go. I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Well, praise the Lord. 
How many of you know you are going out this week like lambs among wolves? Bless God. Are you nuts? <laughs> and then we wonder when we get beat up or attacked out there, we act like something strange is happening to us. Well, we were sent out like lambs among the wolves. So let that bless you as you go through your week. But then look, look at verse 9. Jesus says to them, Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. Then at the end of it, in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Freely receive, freely give. Now Luke doesn't add that to, this, to his portion, but it's happening. They have freely received and they are freely giving. But what's interesting is the very next thing that Luke writes to us is an encounter with the teacher of the law. Now, we don't know if this is actually what happened if, as the next story or if Luke wrote that intentionally after this story to make a point. I don't know if you, how you believe about the gospel writers, but I don't think the gospel writers actually necessarily wrote the order of events as they happened. The gospel writers are sharing with us true, accurate stories of what happened, but they're presenting it in a way that their readers hear and understand that Jesus is the Messiah. So whether or not it happened right after or not, Luke puts it here intentionally for a reason. And it's the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with this story. Most of our culture is at least somewhat familiar with it. We have even in our culture here what we call Good Samaritan laws. A Good Samaritan law is, if you know, if I see someone in a health crisis and I do something to help them uh, and I actually make the situation worse, but I did the best with what I know and I understand and I tried to help, I cannot be sued for that. Because I just offered the assistance that I had. That's a good Samaritan law, and it covers uh, so that we actually step in and help at least up to our level of ability. The word good Samaritan has really just became synonymous with helping someone that's in need. Oh, that, that person is such a good Samaritan. Man, that was a very good Samaritan act to do. Like, it's something that our culture understands. But this story is more than about just helping people that are in need. There's a whole lot that's happening in this story, and I want to unpack some of it. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but I want to unpack some of it. So it starts in verse 25, and it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, an expert in the law would probably be someone who uh, is, is a part of the, the Sadducees, part of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin, the council. Um, they're part of the priesthood. They're Levite. Uh, they're studying the scriptures. They're trying to make sense of it. And they're there to, to test Jesus. Now, when we think of sometimes the, the word test, we think maybe to trap. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes they're there just to get what Jesus' take on it because there's a lot of conversations happening about the Scripture and he's there to find out what Jesus knows or what Jesus' Jesus's thought is as a rabbi on this passage. So he says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? 
How do you read it? And what's, what's happening here is when the, the people of, of Israel come back from Babylonian captivity, as we've talked about, they begin to study the Scriptures. They recognize they went into captivity because they forgot the Scriptures. They're not going to make that mistake again, so they want to study the Scriptures. And as they study the Scriptures, they realize that with the 636 laws that are in the Torah, sometimes the laws intersect. And it's impossible to obey both of them. So they have to come up with a hierarchy of laws. Which is the most important? Which is above this one? So that when two of them intersect, we know which one to obey because it's higher than this one. Does that make sense? So how do we do it? Like the Sabbath says, don't do any work on the Sabbath. But what happens on the Sabbath if my ox falls into a pit? What do I do? I mean, I should pick my ox up out of the pit, but I can't work on the Sabbath. And so they're, they're having these conversations, they're wrestling with it, and that's exactly what he's asking them to do. Now, there's total agreement for most of them on the greatest commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's the Shema, they recite it every day, several times a day. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. You should love Him. That's the greatest commandment. Nobody really argues with that. But what commandment comes next is where there's some disagreement. And there's a lot of opinions in the Jewish day of, of the Jewish time, but there's two main schools. The first one is keep the Sabbath. That's the second greatest commandment. And I know that you and I look at that and we're like, oh, that's a religious one. But you have to understand for these people in this time, they believed that Sabbath was woven into the fabric of the universe. And in order to, to participate in the Sabbath, what you're doing is humbling yourself before God. You're putting God in His rightful place as the provider, as the maker, and you're putting ultimate trust in Him. And so the Sabbath is about surrender. So it's not just a religious duty thing for them. It's really about surrendering to God. So the best way to love God is to keep the Sabbath. The other group is saying, well, really the best way to love God is to love my neighbor like myself. Because there's three times in the Torah, there's three times in the Hebrew that this phrase appears, and you shall, and you shall love, and you shall love, and you shall love. There's only three times. The first one, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and you shall love the Lord your God. The second one is found in Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. Do not seek revenge, do not bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So hermeneutically, what's happening is the Jews are like, man, if this is only used three times, then they're t it's tied together. So the greatest commandment is to love God. The second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor. So what's happening is the expert's like, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? And Jesus is like, what do you think about it? And so the guy answers. This is how he answers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. No surprise. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you'll live. That's life. But, oh, if he would have just stopped there. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? See, what he wants Jesus to do is to draw a circle. Who's on the inside of this commandment? Who's on the outside of this commandment? Who am I obligated to love? Who's my neighbor? Jesus refuses 
to draw that line. And ultimately in this story, what he does instead is command us, don't worry about who your neighbor is, worry about your character and just be a neighbor. Be the type of person who loves mercy. And so in verse 30, Jesus in reply tells a story as any good rabbi would when they're teaching. Jesus doesn't just give an answer. Jesus teaches them through an illustration so they discover the, story, the meaning, the truth. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. See how Jesus inverted the, the answer, the question? He didn't just tell him who, who was the neighbor to these guys. He said which one of them was a neighbor. Which of the characteristics, which of them had the characteristics of neighborliness within them? It's not about situational ethics. It's about the character of our heart. The character that we carry as the people of God. And the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. See, in this time period, it would have been very common for rabbis to use parables. Parables are a story that teach a truth. They're an earthly story. They tell an earthly thing. But they teach a truth about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. All rabbis would use them. They, Jesus did not come and invent parables. He used parables because that's what the people of his day did. And it was very common, just like maybe in our day today, I was always told in Bible college that every good sermon has three points. You've got to have three points. In fact, I had a Bible teacher, God love him, that said, if you ever preach a pointless sermon, I will come to your church and haunt you. <laughs> you should always make a point. There should be three points in a sermon. A good sermon always has three points. A good parable always has three points. So the priest and the Levite come along, point one, point two. This is not just about the fact that these guys are just religious people that don't care about other people. We look at this and we're like, well, they, those, they were just not kind. Remember, this is a story about overlapping texts. What's happening here is the priest and the Levite have to obey the law to be ritually pure. Okay, whenever we talk about ritual purity in the law, especially for the Levites and the priests, we talk about uncleanness. Uncleanness is not sin. It has to do with ritual purity. So when women go through their monthly cycle, in that time period, they're unclean. Uncleanness has to do with the brokenness of our world. It has to do with blood. It has to do with, with making sure that, that we don't contaminate 
the holy things, the set-apart things, the people of God during these times, not through no fault of our own, we come in contact with a dead body, or we in some way in the broken world we live in become ritually unpure. So the priest and the Levite who have a job to do in the temple have to look at this man and consider, is it worth the risk to help this man and risk ceremonial impurity? Because it's not just going to affect me, it's going to affect the community. If I can't do my job in the temple, if I can't offer the sacrifices and offerings. Now, understand, in this time period, the sacrifices and offerings are not just some, you know, if you have time, do them. They're essential. Like, they need them to cover the sins of the people. So this is a big deal. I mean, they're wrestling with, can I stop and help this man? And so they, they interpret the scripture that ritual purity trumps helping this person in need. Ah, the priest does it. The Levite, who would be affected less than the priest, but still would have to deal with that, rit- that ritual impurity, also passes by on the, uh, the same side. So the people are ready. They know that number three is going to do it right. They know that number three is going to be the point of the story. And so they're expecting a righteous person to come along. Of course, a righteous Jew (laughs) to come along, because those are the righteous people. And probably even a Pharisee, because the Pharisees are not like the Sadducees, the priests, the Levites, the experts in the law that are worried about ritual purity. The Pharisees actually lived out with the common people. They had more compassion than those guys in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, your righteousness, your compassion has to exceed that of the Pharisees. So the people are primed for the Pharisee or the righteous man to show up on the, the, the scene. And all of a sudden, it's a Samaritan. I mean, almost a collective gasp would have probably been heard in the crowd. Most of the stories that we read in our gospel are people trying to get Jesus to take sides. Sadducees and Pharisees, this viewpoint, that viewpoint, um, even the, the men that come to him and say, hey, my brother is not sharing the inheritance properly with me. And Jesus is like, you need to worry about greed. <laughs> I love it. It's like, Jesus, tell my brother to do this. Mary and Martha, Jesus, tell Mary to get up. And Jesus is like, she's chosen what's better. I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not taking your side. He didn't really take Mary's side either. Jesus is not taking sides. Jesus is here for everyone. Jesus is here to tell you, take my side. Because all of your human sides are broken. We cannot give full allegiance to any human thing because it's all broken. And Jesus says, I'm coming to introduce a brand new way. I'm coming to introduce the kingdom as it was originally meant to be. And I'm asking you to take my side. And this is where we have the tension in the scriptures that we talked about. How do we, how do, we do this? How do we know when it's, it's time to value human life or when it's time to value the, the, the body as a whole? How do we know when it's time to show mercy and maybe when it's time to, 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 to speak up and, and, and put someone out of the church? How do we know how to do that? And we don't like tension because we, just, we, like, we like it black and white. 
So Jesus, just tell us, should we always do it this way or should we always do it that way? And Jesus really never answers those questions because we need to live in the tension because sometimes the the needs of the individual have to trump the needs of the corporate body if the situation calls for it. But sometimes the needs of the community, the needs of the body, my commitment that I've made to the body of Christ has to trump the needs of the individual. How do we know which one? We walk by the Spirit. But if we do not live in that constant tension, what we'll have a tendency to do is to err one way or the other. And we'll always put the needs of the individual, sometimes ahead of the body, at the, the, at the, the cost to the body that we shouldn't do. And sometimes we'll put the, the needs of the body ahead of the cost of the individual and we'll let them suffer because, well, I needed to do this because, and we actually should have done that. And so we have to keep these things in tension all the time. And so Jesus brings a Samaritan into the story because he's just going to mess things up a little bit. The Samaritan is the one that interprets the text correctly. How is this even possible? The Samaritans were despised. They were worse than foreigners. And yet Jesus makes him the one who understands mercy triumphs over everything. He's the one that understands, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Go and find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Here's what God requires of you. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Have this type of character within you and you will be a good neighbor. Do you ever wonder where the third use of this is? I told you there were two and you will and you shall love and you shall love. Do you know where the third one is? It's also found in Leviticus chapter 19, a few verses down, verse 34. The foreigner residing among you, must be treated as your native-born. Love them, you shall love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In this story, Jesus is bringing the third use into this argument. It wasn't a part of the argument because it's clear, love, love God, love your neighbor, And he's throwing Samaritans and foreigners into this. Boom. Why? Don't forget who you were. Don't forget who you were. You were foreigners. And I came for you. See, what Jesus is saying to us is, do you see yourself in the story? Because every single one of us was the man in need of help. We used to sing the old chorus. Do you know it? He poured in the oil and the wine, the kind that restores my soul. He found me bleeding and dying on the Jericho Road, and he poured in the oil and the wine. As I was preparing this, I'm like, what were the rest of the words to that song? That's it. That was the whole song. And I remember singing it as a kid, but I don't know that I understood what was happening. What Jesus is saying is, every one of us in this room, we were the man on the side of the road. And Jesus is the Samaritan. 
Because he was despised and rejected by us. And yet he stopped. And he poured in the oil in the wine. And he restored us. And he took us and he put us in the inn. And not only that, but he's like, Father, any future sin, just add it to my account. This is how he's treated us. Every single one of us. And what Jesus is reminding us, if we're going to be good neighbors, never forget who we were. Never forget that I'm not good enough because I'm good enough. I'm good enough because of what he's done for me. Never forget who we are. Without him, I'm nothing. And if I don't keep that in my heart, I won't be a good neighbor. I'll draw circles. I'll put some people on the inside that I'm obligated to love and some people on the outside that I'm not obligated to love. Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 18 where two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Oh, Lord, I thank you that I've never had a sip of alcohol in my life. I mean, I've got all kinds of pride. And I've got all kinds of issues where I slander people. And I can't wait to call them out on Facebook, Lord. I can't wait to tell about all those idiots in town that don't know how to do their jobs. I can't wait. Lord, thank you that I'm not stupid like them. Oh. And Jesus is like, yes, you are. You're just like them. Yeah, you may not be entangled in whatever they're entangled in, but you were entangled in just as much. And when I found you, I brought you to myself, and I put it all on my account. And as you have freely received, I want you to freely give. The tax collector, verse 13, stood at a distance and wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For the one who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, what Jesus is doing is he always takes it a step further. (laughs) I mean, the guy is like, Jesus, how do you read the law? Which is is the, the best two commandments? And Jesus is like, how do you read it? And so Jesus enters into the discussion and he, he, he makes his point, but he goes one step further, as he always does. It's not just about keeping the law. It's about keeping the spirit of the law. And we keep the spirit of the law by remembering who we were. There is no one that I will encounter this week that is more lost than I ever was. There is no one that I will encounter this week that will act more incompetently than I am. Apart from the grace of God, I am them. And if I keep that in my heart, I will handle them in a whole lot different way. The Apostle Paul writes three scriptures that really seem like a progression, that really speak to this point. The first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says, I am the least of all the apostles. And I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, the apostle Paul isn't, isn't talking about that he's still guilty of that. But he's recognizing what he deserved and what he got. And so he's using that reminder to keep himself from developing spiritual pride, where he thinks he's a little bit better than the other apostles. He recognizes he's not better. He is where he is only by the grace of God. But in Ephesians chapter 3, the apostle Paul says it different. In verse 8, he says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. This is a little bit fuller understanding of who the Apostle Paul is without Christ. And if he is going to be a minister to the Gentiles, he needs to understand this. Because if you're going to minister to the Gentiles, if you're going to minister to the heathens, you've got to remember you were just like them. Because if you don't remember it's going to lead to spiritual pride and a better-than-them attitude. And it's going to lead to you putting them down rather than you speaking life to bring them up. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul goes even one step further. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. It's not about putting ourselves down. It's not about self-degradation. It's about making sure I see people through the lens of the Savior. I remember that I was the man on the Jericho Road and I was in need. And Jesus, even though he was despised and rejected, stopped for me. And not only did he take care of me in that moment, but he has promised to take care of me until the end. And everything gets onto his account. And I don't know about you, but I make mistakes often. I met with someone this week and they said, you know, sometimes before we meet, I get a little anxious because I know that I haven't been living the way that I need to live. And I said, please don't ever get anxious to meet with me. Because I promise you, you and I are the same. And I fall, fall short just as much as you do, just maybe in different areas than you do. And I'm not here to point out your flaws. I'm here to encourage you to step up. I'm not saying that we should excuse sin. I don't believe we should ever, ever condone what God condemns. But I don't think we should justify a lack of compassion and mercy when we deal with those people either. For you and I to navigate the culture that we live in today, we need to keep in mind who we are apart from Christ Jesus. Or we're not going to navigate this moment well. When we speak, we're going to speak with a level of spiritual arrogance and pride. 
And that's what's going to come across. But if we remember who we were, it's going to enable us to sit at the table of Imago Dei with some disreputable folk. Not condoning their sin, but calling them out of it to a higher life. We live in a culture that loves to expose the mistakes and flaws of other people. Social media has become crazy in our culture. I mean, I'm all for reviewing companies on Airbnb and hotels. I want you to review them. If they're not clean, I want to know because I want to make sure that I stay in a clean hotel room. There's no, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with reviewing any type of business. or. But before we review, make sure we give mercy. And here, here's what I found on Airbnb. Like when you're trying to reserve a place, I find like, 50 people that are like, it's the best place I've ever stayed in. And one person that's like, oh, it's trashed. It's, it's terrible. And here's what I've realized. The cleaning person had a bad day. And that unlucky soul happened to be the one there at that time. Don't be the one that has to call everybody out. Be the one that lives a life full of mercy. Maybe the waitress is slow that day. Maybe she's scattered because she got some bad news. Maybe she was up all night with a, a child that was sick and didn't get enough rest. I, I don't know. But how many times do we instantly go into mode of incompetence? See people through the eyes of the Savior that stopped for them, met them where they are, and ministered to them. That was us. So today, maybe there's some in the room that you need to receive God's mercy. Maybe you're watching online and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You're that person that's on the road right now. You're broken, you're hopeless, you've made a mess. Maybe it's by your own doing. Maybe it's by the doing of other people. And today, you just need Jesus to come and pour some oil and wine on your life. In just a moment, I'm going to ask for a response, and I want to pray with you, and I want to pray for you. But I think there's going to be another group that's here today. Then maybe that's not us. But maybe we're the group that needs to go and do likewise. And maybe today there's needs, there needs to be some repentance of attitudes, conversations, actions, inactions. Maybe there's something that you've been holding against someone else that the, the Holy Spirit is coming today. And the moment I brought it up, the Holy Spirit said, do you remember? Can I tell you, your breakthrough can be tied to what you're holding on to. Jesus said, if you do not forgive your brother, my heavenly Father will not forgive you. I'm not saying you got to like deal with the emotion. It's not going to take time and a process, but forgiveness is a choice. 
And we can always justify why we have the right to hold on to it. That person really did wrong. That person really mistreated me. And here's the thing. I've forgiven them, Pastor Tom. Then why on earth do you keep talking about it? Why on earth do you keep telling people about how you were mistreated in that way? In every chance you get, in every conversation. I, I don't want to beat you up, but the breakthrough that you're looking for might be tied to that moment. And it might be time to release that. It might be time to say, you know what? Yeah, those people mistreated me. Those people did me wrong. But it's nothing compared to what I've been forgiven of. Nothing. Jesus told a story in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 18 about the unmerciful servant was forgiven a debt of millions. And he went out and found a servant that owed him thousands. And he wouldn't forgive the debt. And the master said, take that wicked servant and lock him up till he pays back every every penny that he owes me. If I was merciful to you, why weren't you merciful to your fellow servant? This is the message that's sometimes hard for us to swallow. We need to be a people that love mercy. So I want you to close your eyes. I want you to take just a moment. I'm not going to keep you long. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you in this moment, but I believe it's going to be what you do as you walk out these doors that's going to make the difference. And I pray that this message of the kingdom doesn't just take a little root in your heart today. One, I hope you're not hard-hearted and don't receive it at all. But I hope this doesn't get scorched or choked out, but puts deep roots down in the soil of your heart today. If you're in the room, just between you and I, I want to know as I pray for you today, are you here and you're like, Pastor Tom, I need mercy. I feel like the guy that's beat up on the side of the road made a mess of my life. I just feel like I haven't been obedient enough. I feel like I just am at my wit's end. I feel like people are, are, are accusing me. I just, I feel like the guy who's been robbed. And I just need Jesus today to pour some oil and wine in my wounds. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand and say, as you pray today, would you pray for me? I need Jesus to pour in the oil and the wine in my life today. If that's you, just slip up your hand, put it right back down. Pray for me. Anyone else? Anyone else? Group two. I'm just going to tell you now, I'm going to put both my hands up. Because I want to go and do likewise. But this is hard. Because our first reaction when we're mistreated is to defend ourselves. But the call of the kingdom is to be willing to be squeezed. And in that crushing, to let him make new wine, if you will. 
And so if you're in the room and you're a part of that second group, I just want you to lift a hand or both hands as an act of surrender right now that recognizes there's something I need to repent of. There's something I need forgiveness of. There's an attitude that needs to be changed. I don't like my responses. I don't like the the criticalness that comes out of my mouth when other people fail. I don't like that I keep rehearsing other people's mistakes and failures of the past. And I know that something needs to change. And I need to remember, I need to remember that I was once that man on the Jericho Road when Jesus found me and he took everything that I had ever done and everything that I will ever do and all of the, t- the ways that I'm never going to measure up and he, he applied it to his account when he gave his life at Calvary and he rose again so that I can walk in newness of life and I can be just like him and I can be merciful like he's merciful. And so Father, today for each of us, God, we want to be like you. Your mercies are new every morning. You've never treated us as our sins deserve. We want to love mercy. And so Holy Spirit, remind us of who we were. Remind us of our level of brokenness. Remind us that if you departed from us today, that we would instantly fall back into the same mess that we were before you came. That anything we've accomplished, that anything that we can do is only because of the cross and we will only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ and nothing else. God, help us as we sit with coworkers and help us as we sit with family members that are apart from you to remember that we are just as lost without you. God, help us as we share the truth of your word with them that it's tempered with the mercy that it needs to be tempered with so that they can hear it and receive it and come over to a place of freedom and hope. Father, for those today that raise their hand in this room or those that are watching online that find themselves today in need of just an extra level of your mercy in their lives, Holy Spirit, would you in this moment sweep over this womb, sweep over whatever room they're in, wave after wave of your mercy and your grace, sweeping over their hearts, sweeping over their minds. Holy Spirit, begin the restoration process in their hearts today. Father, I pray for this body. God, we live in a time where we really are being sent out like lambs among wolves. Father, teach us. Teach us how to be shrewd and yet innocent. How to live in that tension. God, how to declare the truth of your word with lips that drip mercy. Jesus, teach us how to sit at this table with those that are despised and broken and help bring them to a place where they find freedom and hope in you. 
Let us be a people that know how to act justly, that know how to love mercy, and know how to walk humbly with you. Holy Spirit, imprint that in our spiritual DNA. Today and throughout this week ahead, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, uh, if you need prayer before you leave, our prayer team will always be available at the end of the service as well. Um, I love the opportunity to be there as well and pray with you today for anything that you might need. Uh, I want to encourage you to stop by the table in the back before you leave today. The information that's there about our church, offering baskets are there as well. Thank you for being here today. God bless you as you go.